You have just entered the Liberty Lighthouse, where we cut through the fog of politics with common sense and logic. Coming to you from Pennsylvania, the state of independence. Here he is, author of the book, Progress, Really? U.S. Navy veteran and your host, Peter Serafine. So, today is Friday the 13th of March, 2020. Wasn't sure what I was going to talk about this episode. I wanted to talk about coronavirus. I feel that I should have talked about coronavirus, but I didn't want to do the same thing everybody else was doing, so I was trying to think of a new way to tackle it. But my thought process ran stray and went in this direction and that, and now I have a guest on the show, Mr. Simon Chadwick, author of uh, the new book, For the People, will be joining us in the second segment. So, why don't we just get started? Welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse. With your Liberty Lighthouse keeper. Your beacon of common sense. Your wiki, if you will. Peter Seraphine. We urge you to join the conversation by calling 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. And sign up to be a member at liberty-lighthouse.com. That's right. Call or text the 64-MY-RIGHTS phone number to give your questions, comments, and concerns to the Liberty Lighthouse. Call or text. Appreciate it. So here's what happened to me when trying to figure out what to do for this show. Like I said, I wanted to talk about coronavirus, but I was just outright frustrated with all of the coverage that I had seen and heard thus far. And I did not want to sound like everybody else talking about the coronavirus, whether it's the left side screaming that we're all going to die or whether it's the right side saying that it's only the flu. I didn't want to be like everybody else. Now, I am one of those people who believes that Western civilization will probably be destroyed by some kind of flu bug or something like that, because I believe that Western civilization has become so sterile that we pretty much don't have immune systems anymore. We overused medications, and again, no more immune systems. But I don't think COVID-19, or the Wuhan flu, as I prefer to call it, is going to be that critter. Somewhere in my research, when I was trying to figure out how I was going to talk about the Wuhan flu, I came across uh, old Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs that came out in 1943 and uh, basically says that people can't move up this, this pyramid of needs until they complete one level to move on to the next. So if you don't remember Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, Uh, Base level is psychological needs, meaning air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing. So according to Maslow's theory, once you have all of those things, then you can move on to the next level of the pyramid, which would be safety needs. This is personal security, employment, resources, you know, health and prosperity. Then again, once you have all of those, you move on to the next level up, which is love and belonging. So Now you're into friendships and family and a sense of connection and intimacy. Once you feel like you have those things, then you move up to the level of esteem where you seek respect and, you know, self-esteem, status and recognition and strength and freedom. And then once you have all four of those levels satisfied, only then can you move up to the level of self-actualization. And self-actualization is the desire to be the most that you can possibly be. 
So when Maslow's theory popped back into my head as re- while researching for this show, I thought to myself, well, it seems to me that the conservative-leaning folks like myself seem to focus on the bottom three layers of that pyramid, and the liberal folks seem to focus more on the top two layers of that pyramid. Well, that made me think, how could Maslow's theory apply to politics? So then I started to think about that and to research that. And in doing that, that's when I came across uh, Simon Chadwick, author of the book For the People, a citizen's manifesto to shaping our nation's future. What Simon's book really is about is achieving self-actualization, which is the top level of Maslow's pyramid, but as a whole nation, not just an individual. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. I think I want to talk to this guy. So this morning, I had a conversation with Mr. Simon Chadwick. So I'm going to cut this first segment short and let you listen in on that conversation with Mr. Simon Chadwick, author of For the People, in the second segment. We'll be right back to the Liberty Lighthouse in right about a minute. You're listening to the Liberty Lighthouse. Join the conversation now. Just call 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. Are you fed up with progressive society? I'm Peter Serafine, and my frustration led me to write a short book titled Progress. Really? Progress, really, is about the past, current, and future state of American culture, government, and social standing. I urge every liberty-loving American to visit my website, seraphine.com, and order a copy. Give Progress, Really, a quick read and some serious thought. That was seraphine.com, S-E-R-E-F-I-N-E.com. Order your copy today. Let me tell you why I chose Anchor to host my podcast. First, it's free. It's one of the few hosts I found that really is free. They have all the tools that you need. You can make your podcast on a computer, or you can download their free app and make edits and uploads straight from your phone. So, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, I say download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. You're listening to the Liberty Lighthouse Podcast. Simon Chadwick, welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse. Thank you very much for spending some time with us here. Peter, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Well, I think we should start by uh, giving some of your credentials. Let let the listeners know who you are. Let's see. You were born in South Africa, raised there for the first, uh, how much of your life? The first 30 years or something like that? Uh, No, it was the first. Well, I guess we were exiled in, when I was about 26, but I'd also been had been spending a lot of time in the UK being educated, so it was a dual uh, upbringing. So, born in South Africa, exiled from South Africa, uh, educated in Oxford, which I've always thought was pretty impressive, master's degree uh, from Oxford University, is, that's a nice, a nice thing to hang on your wall, for sure. <laughs> it, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> and then you've gone on, you have been an entrepreneur, you have been a corporate CEO, you're now editor of a trade magazine. You've got quite the resume, sir. Well, thank you very much. It's been an interesting journey. Why? Uh, I, I, 
Well, I think part of it is, uh, part of it is having worked in a number of different countries, um, and observed how well they operate or not. Um, part of it is when you're a corporate CEO, you know, it's very different from when you're an entrepreneur. Um, and very often when I was a corporate CEO, I found myself managing upwards to our owners far too much and trying to protect our, our employees from them. Um, so that was, uh, you know, a, a whole skill set that had to be learned. Uh, today I do management consulting, I teach, uh, I write, and as you say, um, I'm editor-in-chief of a magazine. So it's um, it, it keeps the brain alive, put it that way, to have all these experiences and to constantly be looking around you, wondering what's going on in the world. Well, today we have you here to talk about your new book and how uh, Maslow's theory of hierarchy uh, affects politics in the world. Uh, your new book, For the People, a Citizen's Manifesto to Shaping Our Nation's Future. Um, yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, your new book came out uh, just in just last month, just in February. It did. Um, it's, uh, it's available on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble, as well as uh, on my own website. Um, and it has been an experience in learning how to market and distribute a book. So, self-actualization, um, that is the highest of the, the highest level in Maslow's the hierarchy theory, and your book is about achieving self-actualization as a nation. Yes, um, I think, you know, if there is any country in the world in modern history that has striven to do that, it is the United States. Uh, we have a, a tendency to believe that we are exceptional, um, a tendency or a belief that is based in the manner of our founding uh, and in the way in which we have shaped this continent to uh, our own uh, desires and dreams. Um, you, know, you can discuss and debate whether uh, you know, it has been um, an entirely, how can I put this, a, a, a journey that has been flawless, it hasn't. But if you think about the national discourse and the way in which people talk, both politicians and others, about uh, what the United States is, uh, is destined for, it is, a, it is a nation that strives for self-actualization. Um, so that's one of the reasons that I started to think, why? Uh, when you go to other countries, they, they don't tend to be talking about, you know, it is our natural place to lead. It is our natural thing to be best. Um, they have other things that they're very proud of, but that's not part of the conversation. So why should that be? And I think it goes all the way back to what the founders were trying to uh, instill from the very beginning. And you're referring to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that word happiness 
having in in the history of mankind never having appeared in foundational government documents before. That's right. It's really remarkable. Um, in the book, I have a chapter or a part, fortunately, talking about ideology. Um, ideology in the modern sense uh, is something that is relatively new. Uh, it's secular ideology in particular, particular political ideology. And really, it, it raises its head for the first time in the Declaration of Independence. And it is quite a, it, to say it's a revolutionary ideology, or was at the time, is a, is a complete understatement. Here is, is a, a set of people um, declaring independence and saying that not only are all men equal, uh, but also that liberty, uh, life, i.e. don't come and kill us, liberty and happiness are all there to be uh, achieved. And that it is government's duty to help uh, society and people achieve those. So, now, academics debate what happiness meant back in those days. Some say that it meant serenity, some say that it meant calm. But whatever um, meaning it had then, uh, it's really it's still remarkable that we should be thinking about the pursuit of happiness. It is the upper levels of Maslow's hierarchy. And for those who haven't really studied Maslow's hierarchy, or probably since psychology class, you know, essentially it's the, it's the, the prerequisites for people to be able to achieve what they are capable of achieving, what's called self-actualization, and goes from uh, the very basics, like a roof over your head and food to eat down at the bottom of the hierarchy, through various levels of safety and security to a sense of belonging, uh, being loved, and then uh, self-esteem and actually achieving your dreams. So here we are in a document saying we're heading for the top of that, pyramid. Then you look at the word liberty and you start thinking about that. Uh, liberty comes from libertas in Latin, which means freedom. Um, in very specific contexts, it means freedom from fear, uh, which is interesting if you think about people's lives in the modern day world. You know, we, we're uh, in a state of fear right now about a virus. Um, we you know, we don't want to live in fear. Uh, we want to be free of that. So, and then I thought, well, where else is this um, enunciated? And, and I, you know, you've got to look at the Bill of Rights. There are the four freedoms: assembly, speech, religion, and freedom from search. And again, the, that was a um, a philosophy, uh, an ideology that had never really been expressed before. So, to my mind, both the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, do mirror very closely what Maslow is talking about. And frankly, to me, that's fascinating. Definitely fascinating. 
one of the definitions for happiness that I've heard, um, I would not say that I've heard from reputable sources or, or educated sources, but one of uh, the theories that I've heard was that the word happiness in the Declaration of Independence refer, referred to the pursuit of property and owning property. And I thought, nah, that's a little bit of a stretch. But have, have you heard that one or had any research, any references to that in your re- research? Yes, and um, I think many people have come to the, the conclusion that it's not necessarily about the uh, ownership per se of property, but the calmness of society that enables property owners to own their property in peace. Does okay. that make sense? That, it does. Like you have, yeah. you have your property, you don't have to worry about the government coming and taking it from you. Right, exactly. Reasonable. And that would fit with, with the rest of the mindset at the time and, and the foundation of the documents. They were, they were tired of a tyrannical government who said, you know, give us your guns and give us tax money. And, and so yeah, that, that would make sense. I still don't know that I agree that that's what they were referencing at the time. It, it does make sense. It very well may be, but I don't know. Um, a question that just popped into my head when you re- when you referenced the virus. Um, does pandemic change where we as a people sit within Maslow's hierarchy? I, I mean, when you bring that fear back in, I mean, that bumps us all the way back down to like level two of of the of the mm. hierarchy if we focus on that. Yeah, it does. Um... And I think, you know, you, if you start from what I was saying and then ask yourself the question, well, what does that mean for what government actually does? What is the role here of government? Um, and where I net out in the book is that the role is to provide both for individuals and society as a whole a framework in which this freedom from fear of various different angles of life can take hold and be real. So allowing people to pursue what they're good at, to belong, to feel like they belong, and to gain a measure of self-esteem and achieve what they look, they're looking to achieve. I think in this instance, obviously health is one of the key aspects of um, you know, the key aspect of human existence, but also of societal existence. Uh, and interestingly enough, you know, we've looked at um, pandemics back in history as interesting historical things that happened. So the flu of 18 and 19, or the plague and Black Death. We've kind of looked at those as, as you know, interesting pieces of history, but it couldn't happen now. Yeah, exactly. So the question is, okay, what is the role of government here? And I think that it's reasonable to say that we 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 have an expectation, uh, given the knowledge that exists, that government has a framework in which to mitigate such uh, an event. Uh, a preparedness doesn't mean that, you know, they should be going around house to house giving out gas masks or uh, weeding out, you know, testing and weeding out anybody who's 
who's infected. This is not like, you know, Monty Python where they're going, bring out your dead. Um, <laughs> but that, but it is, uh, an, a reasonable expectation that a framework would be set up whereby, uh, the country can deal with it. And I think, uh, in this country to a certain extent and in other countries as well, um, the anger and fear that people are showing is because that framework, for one reason or another, has not worked. There's definitely a lot of anger and a lot of finger-pointing, which I don't yeah. understand at all. You know, viruses are apolitical. They don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. They, why are we pointing fingers from side to side? The one that in the news just yesterday, I believe it was, that that almost made my blood boil was uh, President Trump gave his speech about the travel restrictions with, with Europe. And within moments of him finishing that speech, a uh, an amendment was tacked onto a bill at the House of Representatives to restrict the power of the presidency so that uh, travel bans have to like go through Congress. Hmm. That's absurd. And that is obviously just a political move. Whether you agree with how President Trump is handling it or not, the presidency does have that right very clearly. Why are we trying to restrict it during a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the, I, I agree with you. That's petty and, and, and silly. And unfortunately, so much of politics is petty and silly. I, I, I think in this instance, um, yeah, there are real questions to be asked. You know, why was the global pandemic task force closed down? Um, you know, what was put in its place? Was it sufficient? Uh, why was the budget of the CDC so heavily reduced? You know, can you give us the, 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 the thinking and the reasoning behind that? But I think overall, it's kind of like, hey, guys, you know, you need to we, we trust you to have to have the leadership capabilities, and if you don't happen to have the ability at least to listen to those who know, and then take decisions in the best um, that, that are in the best interests of the country as a whole. And I think that's what's frustrating people that we have not seen that type of leadership. Not necessarily just from Trump, but from many other uh, angles as well. Too much politicking, not enough leading. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for goodness sake, uh, you know, we when we were in world wars, we were lucky enough to have leaders who rose to the occasion and actually concentrated fully on the task at hand. They were not politicking all the time. And I think, you know, we need leaders in the modern age who, uh, take the same, the same angle. I, I would definitely agree with you. However, uh, during both world wars, I, you know, my af per per perspective, being a small government guy, I agree with you that the, the structure, the foundation of how to handle these things should exist. I don't believe that we need to expand government to make that happen. And in the past, during the world wars, we ended up with governments much larger after the war than before the war because of uh, the leadership grabbing power 
and then not giving it back when the over when the war was over with. I, that I, maybe it may be true. I I, I don't know. We we could have an, an entire hour's conversation about that. Probably. That's what I was just going to say. Um, We've gotten completely off the point of your book, and uh, we should probably <laughs> get back to topic. So, uh, for the people is the name of the book, and it examines uh, what it means to belong and the sense of security and well-being on uh, on both an individual and and society level. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Uh, the, the idea of self-actualization as a nation, not as a political group, um, anything that we can do collectively as a true nation is a wonderful idea. Yeah, I think um, it, it is, and that's what has always fascinated me um, about this country, that, that it does have this self-belief. And uh, having worked, you know, in Africa and in Italy and the UK, I often have found that the people in other countries kind of sneer at that. You know, what makes Americans think they're so exceptional? Um, I'm somebody who you can you can't tell from my accent, but I'm somebody who naturalized um, to become a citizen of this country, and you know, you don't do that lightly. The idea, I'm not saying that necessarily I agree that, you know, this is the, the, uh, the city, the shining city on the hill, uh, cause I think there's plenty that, um, you don't get right. But the, the idea that runs through, uh, this nation that we can strive to be our best is, uh, something that is, is lacking in many other places. Uh, you've mentioned belonging, Peter. And I think that is is really at the core of a lot uh, of what government can do, and which is why I talk about frameworks rather than government intervention. Belonging is a two-edged sword. You you know you can belong to something that is is wholly good and you feel good about it, um, you know, to a church or to a book club or to a political party or whatever it is. Um, and you can be working for that national self-actualization or your local self-actualization or whatever it may be. But there's, there's the other side of belonging, um, the belonging to gangs, the belonging to cults, belonging to criminal enterprises. And it's there where I think, you know, government has to be able to go by a principle that you you know you have this freedom to belong um, but you cannot do it at the harmful expense of people around you uh, you know that if you're if you're a member of a cult you probably have a wonderful feeling of belonging but going out and you know murdering a few people there's not, you know, that's not a right that's given to you. So the what we need to be striving to do, and this is where I think, I think government as a moral force comes in, is to extend belonging to the widest form or the widest uh, set of people and and diverse set of people within the country as possible. So that there 
isn't this temptation, uh, sometimes born out of desperation, to go and seek belonging elsewhere where it's not going to be helpful to, to society. I don't know if that makes sense for you. It did, and, and as soon as you brought up the downside of belonging, the, the word cult was the first thing that popped into my head. Uh, but yeah. hate group was also one that popped into my head. Yeah. Belonging is a good thing as long as the goal of the group that you're belonging to is a positive good thing. Uh, if if the goal of that group is hate and fear and murder and rape and pillage, then obviously that's not good on any level. Right. Yeah, I think so. But and then you have to dive back and and uh, really start to think about why uh such groups exist. Um you know and, and this is where politicians actually do bear a lot of responsibility. Um so in the book I actually reference another book which was published some time ago now, uh which I thoroughly recommend to you, uh, called the Dictator's Handbook. I I recommend it because it is probably the most cynical take on politics you will have ever read. That's not right up my alley. <laughs> uh, but essentially, um, the, the basic premise is, is that all politicians, um, you know, once they're in power, their primary goal is to stay in power. And, uh, you know, if it's not the primary goal, it's a primary goal. And the, in the way in which to do that is to reward the people who put you in power and keep you in power. Now, if that set of people is very, very wide, as in, you know, a proper functioning democracy, uh, the type of payback that you give tends to be in public goods. But if it is very, very narrow, i.e. there are a few moneyed people who got you in there, um, then you are likely to be paying them in cash or kind. Uh, the other, the, but the, the interesting thing here is when you study dictatorships, there are basically two paths to dictatorship. One is the military path, and the other is the slide-in uh, path, or what I call the slide-in path. You get yourself elected, and then you attack pretty much everybody who can um, get you out again and you, you attack uh, the laws. I mean, just in a, in a curious way, that's exactly what Putin is doing right now in Russia, trying to stay in power. But the, the interesting thing there is that uh, to, in order to get elected in the first place, you have to follow a narrative, and it's a simple narrative that's been used over and over and over. It's everything's a mess, it's all the fault of, and then you insert your favorite um, hate group. Yeah, uh, group X. Group. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, it's brown people, it's communists, it's Jews, it's Italians, whatever. And then you say, once we've got rid of them, uh, everything will be fine, and only I can do it. That's the narrative. And in order to do that, you know, once you do that, and once you otherize, a certain group of people is being responsible for everything that's going wrong. 
then you hit at the core of grievance that people who are marginalized in society can latch on to. People don't like admitting that things are either beyond their control or that they were responsible for them. But if they can say that they can point the finger somewhere else and say it's all their fault, then they will follow an autocrat uh, to the ends of the world. It doesn't matter, you know, whether they, you know, it doesn't matter what what that autocrat says or does, particularly does. It's just that they identify with them. And I think one of the things that I you may disagree with me on this, but one of the things that I think has gone wrong uh, in this country um, is the influence of money in politics. And I think it has corrupted many politicians, and I think it has reduced the number of people who are responsible for keeping those politicians in power. And therefore, I think we are now getting to the stage where uh, that money is far more important than actually achieving governance. I don't think anybody Absolutely. in the country could could disagree with that. Uh, that's that's one of the few things that I could agree with. With uh, I, I've mentioned my friend Jamil across the street many times. Uh, mm. It's one of the few things that we could always agree on is is there's too much money in politics, and uh, yeah. we we make a distinction about lobbying versus money. No, we should not ban lobbying. Lobbying is the act of banding together for a common cause. What needs to end is the the monetary influence of the lobbies. I I agree. I agree. I I mean, I run two national trade associations here in the United States, and um, lobbying was an essential part of it because, you know, essentially we uh, were trying to protect and advance the interests of our industry without excessive government regulation. Um, but that didn't mean we poured money into politicians' pockets, quite the reverse. Um, but you, know, you think about the what has happened, uh, particularly for elections in, to the House of Representatives, it's a constant election now constant election cycle and it is a constant money raising enterprise uh, I've read interviews with freshman congressmen and congresswomen who have been told the moment they get into the House of Representatives this is your fundraising target, go do it not here's how you put a bill through or these are the committees you should be on or whatever here's your fundraising target that's, and that that's great to have that as the first nuts. focus. Yeah, isn't it? It's like you're a money-making machine. You belong to the party. You know, behave. For, forget the fact that you were just elected to the people's house and to do the people's work. First, you've got to go raise money. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that's and I don't know about your inbox, but mine is deluged these days. Deluged. With pleas for donation. Oh, definitely. And, and, and not just from politicians, but also from those lobby groups. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and the ways in which they do it are pretty underhand sometimes. Uh, you know, so I looked at, 
of ways in which other countries have, again, tried to, to deal with this. Um, there are essentially three ways. I won't go into them here, but uh, they're in the book. Um, but it, it definitively seems to me that, you know, we need to um, set up a framework for elections that, A, uh, gives a more, a, a more level playing field uh, to various different groups and parties, but B, also shortens the election cycles. Um, you know, if the Brits can elect a prime minister uh, in one month and a full House of Commons, then sure as hell the Americans could do the presidential election in six. I would hope so. <laughs> you sound doubtful. <laughs> I, I just no. I was actually stuck on the on the on the your comment about the Brits doing it all in one month, and and my mind went to the to the uh, financial restrictions that the Brits have on political campaigning that we don't have in our country. Um, and I thought, well, that's part of the reason they can do it in, in a month is because they don't have the money to keep it going for three years at a time. Well, that's. That is part of it, and you know, the Brit system is actually quite interesting. The, the, the three systems for governing money in elections are, are either, number one is limit the amount of donations and the amount of spending. Number two is limit the amount of uh, donations, but not the amount of spending. And number three is limit the amount of um, spending, but not donations. The Brits use the third. You can give as much money as you like to the parties, not to candidates, to the parties. But the parties can only spend a certain amount of that money. So the rest of the money they use, basically, to build up their own infrastructure. But the candidates and the parties themselves are, are strictly limited in terms of uh, how much they can spend. And so the it's, it's interesting. I'm not saying any one system is better than the other except that they all do seem to lead to shorter campaigns and uh, less campaigns. Well, Simon, we've been on the phone for almost 45 minutes. Uh, I I think that's a, a big chunk of your morning, and I appreciate your time. Uh, uh, our listeners, we need to support Simon's book. It sounds like a bunch of wonderful ideas. Uh, we have... For the People, the name of the book, the subtitle being A Citizen's Manifesto to Shaping Our Nation's Future, available on Amazon and at uh, Simon's website, simonchadwick.us. Is there anything else, any other way that you'd like our folks to reach out to you, Simon? By all means, uh, reach out to me on my website and uh, my email address, info at simonchadwick.us. Uh, I'm always looking forward to a good, respectful conversation, and uh, I look forward to having it with your listeners. And, Peter, you've been a delightful host. Thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming to the Liberty Lighthouse with me, and feel free to come back anytime. That'd be great. That'd be great. Maybe we should check in with each other uh, once this virus is passed. That's a good idea. I like that. Thank you very much, Simon. You enjoy the rest of your day. You too, Peter. Take care. 
So that was Simon Chadwick, author of the new book, For the People. We got off topic a few times during that conversation, but I really think that For the People is a great book and has some great ideas of how we can fix the, some of the problems in our government. So that's going to be it for this week. Come back next Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for the Liberty Lighthouse. Until next week, protect your liberties. Once they're gone, there's no getting them back. God bless America. Thanks for listening to the Liberty Lighthouse podcast. Be sure to sign up at liberty-lighthouse.com to download Peter's free ebook from the file share page. And don't forget to call 64 My Rights to leave comments for the show. That's 646-974-4487. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about Liberty Lighthouse. And wherever you listen, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated.